Ready? Ready. All right, let's roll. Mic check, mic check. You're very hard to record. (laughs) Go back to the pool. (laughs) All right, sounds good. Okay, so let's start with a update on training. Where are we at? What are we doing? We've been open water training since we had, um, I mean, I say we loosely. <laughs> I sit in the boat and watch you. Yeah, we've done a few open water swims, getting a little bit further each time. First one was Lake Huron, and the temp was around 5 degrees Celsius, so it was quite cold. That was a scary day. Yeah, I think you were scared. I, I think I was fine. Yeah, okay. Ish. <laughs> And then, yeah, it's been getting a little warmer each time, going to like 9 degrees, 11 degrees. Hopefully next time we're in, we're 15, but unlikely because it's going to be Lake Huron again. So we're probably going to be 12, 13. And tell me why you very much prefer to train in Lake Huron versus Lake Ontario. Why is that? Uh, Lake Huron is cleaner. Um, it's colder as well too. So I feel like if I push myself harder now, then the actual swim will be easier. And I use the word easier lightly cause it'll still be a very challenging swim. But yeah, Lake Huron is just generally a, a rougher, tougher lake. Yeah. And you smell like fish when you get out of it. Out of Lake Ontario. Ontario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lake Ontario smells like a dead fish. <laughs> And then that transfers to me. Yum. Yeah. So it's such a nice car ride with you afterwards. Yeah. I'll go back to wishing I smelled like chlorine all the time. Yeah. I feel like, well, we have this, um, we do have a great interview with Cam H. Um, a couple shout outs since then. You've become somewhat of an influencer on Instagram, meaning that people have just been like sending you stuff. So um, a big shout out to Dry Robe. They sent you a, a robe for, you're not reacting. Be an influencer. <laughs> Well, you were still talking, so I didn't <laughs> want to interrupt you because you were very, very polite. You were very clear that mm. we don't talk over each other. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, no, Dry Robe uh, sent me some some gear, and New Breath has reached out and wants to support the swim. Yeah, lots of lots of people that uh, arguably are, are strangers and that I don't know um, reaching out and wanting to support, which is pretty cool. Somebody else that does video production wants to wants to be part of the swim and document it which is cool just in general ron from other ship yes ron bat at ron bat at ron bat just Huge really kind of people reaching out to you right now to to offer help and support and whatever they can do and we really appreciate that absolutely yeah so we did an interview together with Aza from cam h uh, what do you want people to know about this? First, I think we should just give like a little trigger warning. We do talk a lot about suicide in this episode for obvious reasons, because this swim is really about mental health and suicide prevention. So just if that's a trigger for you, maybe skip this one. Really powerful stuff in this interview. And so I guess my question for you is like, what sticks with you? What what I mean, without giving too much away, what have you been like thinking about after we did this? Yeah, I think Aza dropped a, a lot of really interesting um, statistics and, and numbers and things that I didn't really know, um, even though I'm 
doing the swim to raise money for CAMH Foundation and mental health. It, it's a lot of things that I was unaware of. So, um, you know, it's given me an opportunity to get a little more educated on some of the struggles and challenges. But the one thing that's really stuck with me is the every 40 seconds. So um, 40 seconds and somebody dies by suicide, which to me is just unfathomable that that, that is the, the number and the statistic. And I think every time I swim two laps, that's another person. That's another person. So yeah, it's, it was just eye-opening. Um, I think that's that definitely sticks with me and keeps me motivated in, in the pool in, in a, a weird, interesting way, I guess. Um, but it just reminds me of, of why this is so important to, to raise awareness and money for and, uh, and do the swim. Yeah. Yeah, this was a, a lot of insight that I also didn't know. And so uh, a big thank you to Azza for joining us. Our hope with this episode was to really connect for those of you that are listening, why Jason's doing this and, and what CAMH Foundation is. And, and a big thank you to everyone who's been donating. Been like really wonderful to see all these people kind of like put their financial support as, as well as their, you know, their uh, moral support behind you. And so it's really important. Once you hear this interview, I think you'll really feel like what the what the gravity is here. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the support has been um, amazing and uh, and keeps me motivated in the pool when I see those donations come in and um, the different people um, that I know and, and don't know. Um, yeah, it's been been phenomenal. And uh, if you can support the, the cause, please do. But obviously, don't put yourself under any pressure to, to make a donation because I think that's important as well, too. Uh, but yeah, if you can and the cause speaks to you, then yeah, please donate. So as we sit here now, you're 27% to your goal of raising $50,000 for the CAMH Foundation. You've raised $13,645, which is amazing. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Um, still got a long ways to go. Um, I think as we keep getting closer, more and more support will we'll get behind it. Um, and then, yeah, we'll just keep pushing forward. Awesome. Well, I guess that's it. So that's it. here's us talking to Azataha from the CAMH Foundation. Here it is. Hi, my name is Azataha, and I'm the Director of Corporate Partnerships with the CAMH Foundation. Uh, with my team, we fundraise through corporations and community groups. We work with them in finding uh, synergies in the work that they do and look at the focus areas that CAMH focuses on. Um, and we uh, find areas that are um, impactful for both. And we build relationships with them that way in a customized fashion. I wonder if we can start off by really kind of talking about the current status of mental health in Canada. And, and obviously, we've been through such a rough time, you know, two years of pandemic, two plus years, I guess now. And we've been left with this mental health crisis in its wake. So I wonder if you can tell me from like a CAMH perspective, you know, how are we kind of grappling with this mental health crisis? And, and what's kind of the state of what's happening now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're truly in the race of our lives to end the mental health crisis. As you know, as you mentioned, we've been in a pandemic for over two years. And of course, the pandemic has increased attention and focus on mental health. Unfortunately, we've been in this global mental health crisis long before COVID existed. 
obviously I'll, you know, I'll share a a few stats and figures with you, but as you know, I'm not a clinician, so I'm kind of going to focus on the high level themes and, and, you know, the, the numbers that we, that we uh, know of. We know that 450 million people worldwide are living with mental illness. We know that every 40 seconds, someone in the world dies by suicide and that 50% of all mental illnesses begin by the age of about 14. So that's a stat that I did not know until I started working at the CAMH Foundation about two years ago. And it's one that I find particularly eye-opening and it emphasizes the need for early attention and intervention. During the pandemic, CAMH research showed that Canadians between 18 and 39 years old reported the highest levels of moderate to severe anxiety, loneliness, and feelings of depression um, of any age group. And that's 18 to 39. Um, The data from uh, the Canadian Suicide Prevention Service showed that there was a 200% increase in calls and texts between October 2019 and October 2020. And we see it in our own emergency department and our own CAMH emergency department. Our teams not only saw a huge increase in volume of patients that are coming to the emergency department, but people are also seeking treatment at their highest level of acuity. In other words, people are coming in experiencing greater levels of illness than in the past. And we also know that our emergency department in January of 2023 saw an increase um, in visits of 10%. So that was 10% higher than January 2022. And in previous year, we had 14,000 visits, which is well surpassing our pre-pandemic levels and hitting a 68% increase since 2014. So these numbers are staggering, but you know we have reason to be hopeful like I said, I'm two years in with uh, with CAMH, and I've seen so many examples of how Canadians are eager to help and to put up their hands and say, how can we help? Just like Jason. Yeah, absolutely. Those numbers are actually <laughs> staggering. I think mm-hmm. we like both have chills. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. a little bit surprised. And I, I've seen a lot of statistics on mental health and just even seen an increase from people that I know that have, have suffered from it uh, in, in the mm-hmm. more recent time. So when you talk to people about these statistics, do you find that people are surprised or blown away by the by the numbers or Yeah, absolutely. I think I think even though um like I said the pandemic kind of brought attention to the mental health crisis, people are still not aware of how many people it actually impacts and the severity of the impact uh, that mental illnesses have on people. And people also don't realize how far behind mental health research is when compared to other leading illnesses like cancer and and heart disease and so on. I think, you know, we're about 20 years behind in research, Um, you know, where where cancer research was 20 years ago. That's where we are right now. So people are definitely shocked when they hear the stats and and that gets them to ask that question. Like I said, what, what can we do? What can we all as individuals be doing, you know, whether fundraising or even speaking about the problem? What is it that is needed right now? Okay, so let's let's talk about you take those numbers into context. And obviously, we're here to talk about CAMH Foundation. Can you give me a sense yeah. of kind of what the role of CAMH Foundation is in this crisis? Like, those are such big numbers to try and like, even mm-hmm. imagine how you tackle that, especially when research is 20 years behind. But yeah. how, how, what do you see as the foundation's role? How is the role kind of like the foundation boots on the ground? Uh, working to make a difference or like at least chip away at some of those really high statistics. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So at the foundation, my team and I, we work to inspire philanthropy that enables leading edge care research and education at the at CAMH uh, hospital. The foundation is charged with raising and stewarding funds to help transform the way we understand and treat mental illness. Our generous and dedicated supporters help CAMH advance discovery and innovation, as well as build spaces that promote recovery and break down the stigma of mental illness. This This has not know been an easy task it wasn't that long ago that stigma faced by our cause meant that you know many people were reluctant to support our organization or even talk about their support um, uh, for the organization publicly i'm so proud of how far our society has come in recognizing that mental health is health and the amazing philanthropy that has been realized in recent years to support our cause you know it's it's you know this inspiring fundraiser here is just one example of of many that really truly warm my heart and will start so many meaningful and important conversations, as well as donations, of course, to help us further our care and research. It, you know, the, the power of people lending their names to the cause cannot be underscored enough. Um, it's really through um, things like that, people lending their names and their voices to the cause, are we able to really bust the stigma and talk a little bit more about, about the mental health crisis and find solutions for people who need it. Let's, let's just talk for one minute about stigma because it's. I feel like mental health is in such an interesting space right now where mm-hmm. everyone is talking about it and everyone's very aware of it, especially after the pandemic. But also there's still this stigma of like, you know, I think a lot of people are struggling. There's lots of conversation about mental health. But at the same time, it's like, can I share my mental health struggle on LinkedIn? Like that doesn't feel you know, safe to me? Like, are people going to judge me? Are people going to, you know, stop doing business with me because I have a mental illness I'm struggling with? How do you kind of figure out that balance of like, everyone's talking about it and still people are really reluctant to share their own struggles? Yeah, that's that's a really good uh, question, Avery. And, and I will say that I am very hopeful and I believe that it is possible for us to get past the stigma. We all need to work together as a society to overcome it. Because of the stigma, those living with mental illnesses will not only be discouraged from talking about it, but they will also avoid seeking help for their illness, further exacerbating the illness and alienating them. You know, as an example, we know that stigma prevents about 40% of people with anxiety and depression from seeking the help that they need. So to get past the stigma, it's truly a work in progress, even though things are better right now, like you said, our work is really not done because people are still feeling it and people are still reluctant to share their stories. And it's only through support of you know people like yourself who are willing to speak about um, the, the you know the struggle and the stigma and the need are we able to even have a chance to make things better. Our brilliant researchers have put together you know kind of a little quick list. It's a great starting point and it will um, it will help us kind of get a little bit closer to a future where people who are living with mental illness are able to get the timely help that they need. And so there are seven things that can be done to to start um, reducing that stigma. Um, the first thing is for us to know the facts. We need to educate ourselves and and you know about mental illness, and in, that includes substance use disorders. We have to you know do the work ourselves and make sure that we have a good understanding you know to to a certain level of what mil- mental illness actually means. Um, and and you know once we educate ourselves, we need to take that kind of a little bit you know one step further and educate others. We have to pass on those facts and positive attitudes and challenge the myths and the stereotypes. Obviously, we we all grow up with uh, certain you know 
upbringing and we have a society that builds the way that we think and, and creates who we are. And part of that is some kind of judgmental thinking. So we all need to be aware of this attitude and the behaviors that we grew up with and, and to be proactive with, uh, with our work to get beyond that and, and really examine why, uh, you know, why, why we have this way of thinking. We also obviously have to choose our words very carefully. The way we speak not only affects people with mental illness, but it also could uh, shape the attitudes of others around us. So with, you know, by making sure that we're choosing our words very carefully, we're, we should have a positive impact on those with, with mental illness as well as other people around us. And of course, we know that people with mental illness, including addictions, you know, their mental illness is only a small part of who of who they are. And it's, just, it's only a part of the larger picture. So we need to be able to focus on the positive and, and really look at them as whole human beings with so much else to give beyond what their mental illness um, may be. And we, of course, have to support people around us and treat them with dignity and respect, offer support and encouragement, no matter who they are and where they are in their journey. And, you know, this this should not be, we shouldn't have to um, highlight this, but of course, it's against the law to deny jobs or services to anybody who um, who speaks about uh, their health issues. We don't see that happening with other illnesses, but we do see it with um, with mental illness, even if indirectly. I wondered in when you were talking about those different steps, something that came up for me is, is this idea of substance abuse and addiction. And obviously it's it's built right into CAMH Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about like how those two things are so inevitably tied together? Because I think for some people they're like, you know, mental health and addiction are two separate things, but I think, you know, they often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm not a clinician, so I, I can't speak to that in, in a lot of detail, but they are absolutely connected. Often we see, uh, you know, substance use disorders um, resulting from an existing uh, mental illness, like depression, for example, or uh, whatever it may be, anything that might require medication might lead to something like substance use disorder. And, and when we often also know that sometimes people with uh, mental illness might have a hard time tracking their medication or so, which could indirectly lead to uh, substance use disorders. So they are absolutely connected. And that's why we work on both at the hospital and, and you know, our work impacting one area will absolutely affect the other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the hospital bit for a second, because I think, uh, I mean, I knew about CAMH before Jason started this journey. Mm-hmm. And one thing I always thought was, I just thought it was a hospital. And so I know that obviously it's the largest mental health hospital in Canada. But can you tell me the value of working to build this kind of mental health facility of the future is and and, and what the role of facilities specifically are in kind of this mental health crisis that we're going through? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So. As you know, um, you know, I'm sure you might have seen billboards and so on, but we actually just announced our No One Left Behind campaign, which is the world's largest fundraising campaign to support hospital-based mental health research with a goal to raise $500 million. This, uh, you know, this is kind of the last part of our 25-year journey of redevelopment and transformation, and it's one that has been powered by philanthropy. The No One Left Behind campaign will support two key elements. One is the life-saving mental health research programs that happen at CAMH. And the second is the CAMH Research and Discovery Center. Now, I highlight that because, you know, it, it is such an integral part of our bigger campaign because we 
we see an absolute need for us to have the facilities needed for all this great research that our doctors are leading, which will be further accelerated and amplified um, by the new Research and Discovery Center. This will be a home for groundbreaking research, a place for dreamers and innovators you know, who are united in our effort to solve the global crisis. Every day, our CAMH researchers advance research uh, breakthroughs that help people living with mental illness despite working in buildings that are built in the 60s. Frankly, our current infrastructure limits their innovation, collaboration, and recruitment of world-leading scientists. So while our researchers uh, persist and continue to drive discovery forward, they are passionate about the work that they do, but the time really has come for an investment and change in our research enterprise the demand, like we, you know, we've been talking about all those, you know, mind-blowing uh, stats, um, you know, so uh, around mental health and mental illness. So demand for our mental health care has surged, and we need earlier diagnosis, tailored treatments, and strategies for prevention. So that's what the Research and Discovery Center will make possible for CAMH and for the world. It will create over 300,000 square feet of collaborative space where researchers, scientists, clinicians, patients, and their families can come together to drive mental health forward. It will also bring um, about two-thirds of our um, researchers, and we currently have about 1,400 research staff, we'll bring them all together in one location to further enable collaboration and potentially increasing the number of CAMH researchers, scientists, staff, students, and trainees by about 43%. The new center will also equip our experts with cutting-edge infrastructure and the latest tools and technologies to better diagnose, treat, and prevent mental illness. Um, it will, you know, we really hope it will serve as a, as a beacon of hope for people living with mental illness around the world because it's about so much more than the building. It's about building a future where no one is left behind. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things around mental health, but one of the things that I've seen is the the access to to help um, in just from a, a cost perspective, but also just reaching out to somebody, putting yourself out there to to ask for help. Do you see technology or, or innovations in, in that way, shape or form to help, um, I guess, commoditize, uh, you know, help moving forward so that people have better access to it from an affordability standpoint and just ease of access? Mm-hmm. So one of the silver linings um, of the pandemic is that it has forced us to, to move um, online and, and be more digital um, with, with everything that we do. So we've actually increased the number of sessions um, or, or we've actually seen more um, virtual access to care, which gives people, I think, a, a bit of a protective wall. They don't have to go in person or have to pick up the phone to call somebody to, to seek help. We have, uh, we've been able to create technologies that allow people to gain access to the help that they need, as well as track some of the help that they need. We have a, a whole department with the, with the hospital that focuses on innovation and technology uh, led by brilliant minds. Again, I like I said, I'm not the clinician, so I don't know the details of the work that they do, but but one of the areas of focus that we're working on is around access and to try to make it as, as seamless and as painless as possible and as accessible to as many people as possible. It's absolutely an area of focus and it's a necessary one. I think there's two areas we want to talk a little bit about, and they're the two reasons 
Jason's doing this swim in the first place. One is suicide and the other is dementia. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to tackle dementia first because I, I feel like going into CAMH, if someone's looking into CAMH, it's not you might not immediately think about dementia as part of something that CAMH would tackle. Can you just give me a sense of how dementia fits into the work that CAMH and the foundation are doing? Mm-hmm. So simply put, it you know it fits in our work because our work is the brain. You know how the brain operates, and you know how can we make sure we have a healthy brain. So one of our main um, areas of research impact is late life mental health, which entails stopping, uh, which entails things like stopping dementia before it starts and helping people age with dignity and hope. So you know while we have learned more about the brain in the last 20 years or so than the entire history of modern medicine that preceded it, there's currently no effective treatment for dementia or other uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Um, You know, not long ago, we believed that, you know, you get the brain that you're born with, you get older, it changes, and it just gets worse. But with the modern advances in brain imaging, We can now look inside the brain with unprecedented clarity, and we know through the relatively new discoveries of cognitive reserve and uh, neuroplasticity that the aging brain is in fact far more flexible and adaptable than we ever thought before. Our researchers are making discoveries all the time, and some of their discoveries will revolutionize how we diagnose and treat the aging brain, raising this exciting possibility that you know, hopefully not too distant future, we will be able to prevent and even reverse the devastating effects of dementia. I mean, I think so many of us have been touched by dementia. My grandfather, mm-hmm. Jason's grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, my own grandmother. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. so I, it's, it's, it's it seems enlightening to imagine a future where that could be prevented or reversed for so, so many families. And and that's mm-hmm. such an important part of mental health also, like th- that I think gets Absolutely. forgotten in the mental health conversation a lot. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I also, you know, just on that same note, um, find there's a connection between dementia and then also the family members dealing with the person with dementia where you then are almost going through a mental health crisis because mm-hmm. you're watching your parent go through something uh, where they're so helpless. And and that's also where I thought with CAMH that there was kind of this unique tie together between the two of just seeing what can happen with dementia for the person going through dementia, but then also the family members um, around watching this person lose themselves. That's a really good point, Jason. And, and one of the areas that we have been developing is caring for those caretakers like what what do they need like you said they're also negatively impacted we have a a family support center actually right out of our uh, queen street campus obviously we don't ask if they have somebody living with uh, mental illness but anybody who self-identifies can join the center and gain access to all kinds of resources and support Um, it's it's an imperative part of caring for those living with mental illness I just have a quick question as a about the center outside of the Toronto area, because obviously, you know, a lot of your facilities are in Toronto. I think some people may think like, oh, it's the biggest hospital, but like I live in Saskatchewan. How does how does CAMH, you know, outreach to people who are outside of the area where your actual facilities are? Um, so, yeah, you're right. Of course, we are based in Toronto. So all walk-ins and so on tend to happen in Toronto. But 
We are a nationally recognized and actually internationally recognized hospital. So a lot of the research that is being done is applied across the country. All the findings that we have are um, applied through the whole population. And we work with researchers and, um, you know, centers and, and other organizations that are spread across the, across the country. So although access may not be direct for those who are outside of Toronto, the impact is absolutely felt across, uh, across Canada. Yeah, one of the main reasons I am raising money for CAMH is to tackle suicide prevention. It's seemed to be pretty prevalent in the last little while um, with people that I know, including myself, and it, it's not something that I've ever really experienced um, within a, a, a you know first degree of, of separation in the past. And now it seems like pretty regularly I'm hearing of of somebody who has you know taken their own life. How does CAMH tackle suicide risk with patients? And is there something that can be done to curb the rate of suicide, you know, in the more immediate future within uh, in Canada and I guess uh, internationally? Yeah, unfortunately, you are right. A lot of us are not so far removed from someone who has died by suicide or lives with suicidal ideation. Like I mentioned, we are the largest teaching hospital focused on mental health, including addictions. So we are committed to suicide prevention. We regularly assess and care for patients experiencing suicidal thoughts in our emergency department. We provide ongoing treatment to those with risk factors for suicide and support people who are grieving a loss by suicide. We know that by, you know, with every death by suicide, it impacts um, about 10 people around that person. So, you know, like I said, caring for for those surrounding those who live with mental illness or who die by suicide is, is an important part of the work that we do. Our researchers are investigating the root cause of suicide and they're developing and evaluating innovative suicide prevention strategies. So along with numerous others, experts in the field, including clinicians, researchers, uh, people who have uh, experienced suicidal thoughts, behavior or attempts, and also family members and the communities, we're contributing to the growing knowledge base on suicide prevention. And we recognize, however, that there's just so much more for all of us to, to do. You know, the most urgent for CAMH and the mental health community is the need to address the lack of resources that makes it difficult to meet the needs for everybody who is experiencing an acute suicidal crisis. Like I mentioned before, we are, you know, we have an ambitious uh, redevelopment plan through our fundraising campaign to ensure that no one is left behind. We know that uh, about 4,000 Canadians die by suicide each year with an average of eight suicides a year. And also we know that for every suicide death in Canada, there are five hospitalizations due to self-harm, and suicide is the ninth leading cause of death in our country. But it's it's more prevalent amongst um, more you know some some specific groups. We know that each suicide is a tragedy, of course, that devastates families, friends, and communities. But it's imperative for us to know and understand better who is at a heightened risk of suicide and how suicide can be prevented. For example, we know that more than half of suicides involve people aged 45 or older. We know that in 2018, suicide was the leading death for children aged 10 to 14. And we also know that 33% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth have attempted suicide, which is compared to 7% of youth in general. 
also are transgender people, the rate of attempted suicide ranges from 32 to 50 percent, as well as with First Nations youth, it's about six times higher than non-Indigenous youth. And Inuit youth, the suicide rate is about 24 times higher than non-Indigenous youth. So we're starting with understanding the who that will help us understand the why that will get us to figuring out prevention. Yeah, and one of the things that you mentioned there, um, a lot of things stood out, but the the way that you phrase it is is died by suicide. Mm-hmm. Not, I know in the past it's been committed suicide. Is that something that's being changed? And I assume that there's a reason for that with the with the word committed, where it's it it's not the right way of uh, of phrasing it. Yeah, so absolutely, we we do definitely prefer uh, died by suicide because it is an illness. When you say committed suicide, is it almost sounds like a crime. So it criminalizes them. It makes them the bad guy, quote unquote. It doesn't treat it as an illness. People die by suicide due to mental illnesses. It's something that happens to them for various reasons. It's not a crime that they commit. That's why we have kind of moved away from, from that terminology. Awesome. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, I think that's really important. The The language we use, I mean, is changes so like you said earlier the language we use we have to be so careful about and and the way we talk about things and how we approach people i think is is so so impactful right yeah yeah it really is as a, this has been really eye opening i think jason and i keep like looking at each other like oh my gosh like the, <laughs> those statistics the the group the groupings of who's most at risk of dying by suicide i think is something that will really stick with me um, and I hope with the people who are listening also. So I wonder, you know, as we move on this journey, Jason's obviously training, we're raising money. I guess I have a dual question as my last question, which is, you know, we're asking for people to donate to CAMH Foundation. You've talked a lot about the new facility. I wonder if you could just give us like a general overview of when you donate, where that money goes. And then on top of that, like how important is it that we do this now? Like almost just like a call to action mm-hmm. based on all the, I mean, if someone's listened to all the statistics and the groupings and things you've talked about, like, I think it's really obvious, but maybe just like a last call to action also about, about why the, the time is really now. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. And, you know, just to speak to where the funds go and what we do with it, we obviously rely on our experts and researchers to tell us what they need, what, you know, what they need to to perform the research, the important work that they do. We generally can designate the funds to a specific area that is, you know, uh, relevant to the donor. So you can choose what makes sense to you, what is relevant to you, what you're passionate about. But we generally group our funds into specific categories that are, you know, brain science, youth, geriatric, precision medicine, and health equity. And obviously, like I said, the the campaign that we're currently running, it it funds research, which is those buckets that I just spoke about, as well as the, the research and discovery center. But people are also able to um, allow us to direct the funds to our highest priority um, areas, which is, you know, what we call kind of our, you know, it's unrestricted. So it's it's more of an open fund that our hospital is able to utilize as is needed with urgent uh, things that kind of occur beyond the budget. It's really crucial for us to to be doing this right now. Uh, like I said, this is, you know, we're, we're right now in the race of our lives. We are so incredibly behind with mental health research. And 
the statistics that you know I talked about uh, earlier, they're only getting worse. So unless we are able to intervene fast, we're able to intervene accurately, we won't be in good shape in the future. We have to allow our researchers to do this incredible work that they do. We have to allow them to do all the investigations and the trials that they need to do to, to help us reach people who need the help sooner and more accurately. This kind of work does not happen without the generosity of our donors. So we are incredibly grateful for Jason and people like Jason who are not only dedicating their own time and their own resources, but they're also, you know, reaching out to their networks and educating people around them and 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 asking people to support this cause that is so important for for all of us. Um, it's under you know mental health affects everybody. We, you know the the pandemic. We say this is kind of one of the very few silver linings of the pandemic. It was obviously an, an awful time, but it did bring attention. Uh, did bring attention to the mental health crisis. Everybody who previously thought themselves uh, thought of themselves as healthy or people who don't have a mental illness have struggled. Most people have struggled with the pandemic, so I think it highlighted the importance of care and access to care, which is really things that CAMH focuses on, and, and that's how we um, hope that we can help the people who need us. Asa, this has been extremely insightful, um, a lot of really good information, and I think some of the things that keep me motivated to continue swimming and training, one of the stats that's going to continue to go through my mind while I'm in the pool is every 40 seconds, somebody dies by suicide. Um, I think us having this conversation here today, um, hopefully, it, you know, my goal with this all is, yes, raise money, but more importantly, awareness. And I think if if it helps one person or saves one person life or, or lets them know that this is not abnormal to to struggle uh, and just talk to somebody, if you're not comfortable talking to a professional, uh, you know, talk to, you know, a family or a friend or, or somebody, but just talking about it, normalizing the, the conversation. So yeah, I think this uh, is is going to achieve you know some of the goals of of the campaign uh, for the swim and uh, and for CAMH. So again, thank you so much for for taking the time uh, uh, to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so incredibly grateful, and and we at the foundation are so grateful for for your work. And um, you know, it's it's been my pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks so much, Ezra. Thank you. Well, again, thank you to Azataha. That was um, really, like I said at the beginning, powerful. Um, and we're glad to have the support of CAMH as we, as as you, I have to stop saying we. It is a as we. As you I, keep. I, I think like, yes, I'm doing the swimming, but the people that it takes to make the swim happen, it's more than just me. Like it's, it is a community event um, and I can't do the swim without you sitting in a kayak with me for two or three hours. I can't do the swim without, you know, boats joining at the, at the crossing. I can't do it without crew coming across with me to feed and stay up all night. Um, I can't do it without, uh, the donations, you know? So like it is a community event and a lot of the people that are, are supporting it are, are putting themselves through, um, a lot of pain as, as well too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, 
I hope that this was eye-opening for everyone, and uh, I hope that it was made it really clear why CAMH is such an important cause, and why we really just like need to break the stigma because the stigma is literally killing people. Absolutely, and I I think just you know talking to your friends, your family, reaching out to somebody that you think maybe is struggling, or somebody that you don't think is struggling. Like I think it's one of those things that you just don't know until it's too late maybe so it's better safe than sorry and and all it takes sometimes is a phone call or somebody to just reach out to you and say how are you doing um and being a an ear to listen to if you can handle that and if it gets more than you can handle then pointing them in the direction of a professional yeah there are resources absolutely um there's lots of resources on the kmh foundation's website i think as i mentioned that through the interview so use those resources talk to your people keep in touch with your friends and ask for help when you need it too absolutely okay well just keep swimming we're all just human keep going yeah bye bye be well (laughs) hashtag just keep swimming hashtag just keep swimming (laughs) okay bye This is the end piece. I just put that in there for a marker for you. So you oh, wow. You're welcome. Wow, you're really... You're end piece. You're really good at this. So look for that really loud piece. <laughs>